la la la. Okay. Me, 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 me. Red leather, yellow leather. Okay, what's up? Okay, so just so the listeners know, for like the last 10 minutes, we have been talking and I realized I wasn't recording. So that's fun. That's fun in itself. It's what you like to call a warm up, I guess. Yeah. I'm Jackie. I'm Hope. And this is Fascism Podcast, where we talk about art, culture, fashion, of course, big one. And we gab about it, but not in a, not in a shallow way, but sometimes in a shallow way. We have range. I would say that. Yeah. And, you know, we're we're two friends who realized we just had too much enthusiasm really for our own good. So we do a lot of reading. We ignore our boyfriends. We ignore our families and we just stick our little noses in books or next to our computer screens. And then we gather every two weeks to talk about it, analyze it, decide what it means for us, for for culture. Yeah, we're still figuring us out, you know? Or maybe we just don't fit in a box, you know, Hope? Maybe we just don't. If you like it, you should give it five stars. But, like, really give us five stars. I know we should just passively suggest it. But, like, if you listen to this episode once and then you decide to re-listen to it again, you should definitely, like, or the next episode, you should definitely give us five stars, please. Please. Yeah. I've been giving people five stars in order to increase my karma. It's just like... Oh, that's a good idea. You hear people say to do it and then you're like, nah. I know. But, you know, but then you're just listening with your greedy little ears. <laughs> exactly. Why do we even like... Yeah. I. It's not even that hard. It's really like the least... The least you could do. We're not, we're not asking for money yet. <laughs> yeah. So just please, please, please. But yeah, today is a media haul, so we're going to go over a bunch of stuff just shortly versus uh, our big research topics that we do. It gives us a little break, and I and some people also say it's the episodes they prefer, so. That's true. What's trending for you, Hope? For me, what's trending is, um, what's it called? <laughs> what's it called? Mindfulness. I'm a mindful ass bitch right now. I had a couple months where I was like really high strung and anxious and like would kind of realize it and was like, ooh, I should do something about that. And then recently I'm kind of like pulling out of it. Brian just read this whole book about mindfulness. And so he was like telling me some of the ideas and like I had learned some of the techniques with a therapist. It was like from the Seattle like free clinic when we were in grad school and I didn't have any money and she was honestly the best therapist I've ever had. Her name was Fern and she helped me so much. So I'm just like thinking better thoughts, kind of like auditing my thoughts to try to have it be like a nicer landscape in there. Um, Today I was an emblem of mindfulness and positivity when on my TikTok video that most people had really good things to say about. One person was sounding off in the comments saying that my arguments were surface level. I did surface level research. Rude. Because you definitely didn't. Well, she was like, yeah, I basically research for a living. I do history, sociology, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you have like a bunch of different jobs. You're like, what's your job? I don't know. Sounds like a liar. Sounds like a lie. When people are like, yeah, I do this and this and this. I'm like, why are you telling me this? Yeah. And it was like, she was like, oh, like saying that they did things for shock value. You could say that about anyone. Like artists use shock. And it's like, I know artists use shock, but that doesn't mean. It's also like she was like, you're saying that she's problematic, but blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I didn't even actually say she's problematic. And I feel like when people hear arguments, that's how they think of them. They're like, you're saying good, you're saying bad. And it's like, no, I'm not saying that. But I was yeah. very nice back. Like I did say, like, I don't think you're understanding my argument, like blah, 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 like some sassy stuff. But then I was like really nice. And she was like kind of continuing to be a little, she was like, I don't know why you're mad, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm definitely not mad. And then she was like, this seals the deal. I'm going to do my research on this topic. Like, as in, like, you clearly are just doing such a bad job of talking about this topic that I'm going to make it my life's mission to research it. And I was like, that's awesome. Like, I'd love to see what you come up with. And I genuinely would. And, like, the conversation ended with her being like, yeah, you know, I do really like your TikToks. Like, I'll keep in touch or something. I was like, oh, my God. 
<laughs> You're like, look at me turning it around. Um, I'm all for mindfulness, kindness, yes, positivity, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not into positivity culture for sure. Yeah, you said positive thoughts, and I was like, yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, good, good clarification. Yeah, I feel like I just watched a TikTok on manifesting. <laughs> And how manifesting is actually really harmful for our, our um, I always say that I manifested stuff. I think there's like a good and bad man. I think there's, a, you need to have self-awareness with manifestation. I've just been thinking about that in general. Like you're not actually like changing the world with your thoughts. You might be inviting things to happen, but I don't think that you're altering the world around you with thoughts. Yeah. And if this one guy was like, it's really bad for your mental health to think that because you will start to assume that you can change reality. And then when something bad and epically bad happens, which it will, um, y- you will think it's your fault somehow. Like, mm. like if someone dies, like if your dad parents die, you'll be like, that was my fault. Um, just an example. And then he was also like, and you kind of lose empathy because people that like start to like gain like when they think manifesting is working, they'll just think people that are poor aren't just manifesting, aren't don't have the thoughts, the right thoughts. So they lose empathy to that. Yeah, I feel like manifesting hit the scene and like really quickly showed how how it could be used for evil. Like, like yeah, thinking you could just manifest your dream job. It does make, I, I've never really connected to the idea of manifesting. I do think that like I have a lot of positive thoughts. Like I joke that like, you know, I worry I'm I worry I'm going to win the lottery. I worry our podcast is going to get too famous because I'm just automatically like, what's the best thing that could happen? You're optimistic. I'm optimistic. That's yeah. But I feel like manifesting is it can be really self-centered and it can really detach you from reality. But I'm sure it's helped a lot of people. I feel like it could you could look at manifesting as goal setting. And that's what I do. Yeah. It's like I like to like look at the goal and see how I can get there and what I need to do. And just like kind of think about it. I think that's all that is. That's really what manifesting is. It's just goal setting. Yeah. It's like a kind of like a more, more woo woo, like fun and flirty goal setting. Yeah, exactly. But that's not what you were talking about. You were talking about mindfulness, just to be clear. But that just made me think of manifesting. Anyway. Yeah. But what's, uh, what's trending for you? A lack of sleep. Mm. Severe lack of sleep. I am working with this group with students and we're doing animation. That's a lot of fun. So it's a side project, of course, this podcast and then my internship. And then I'm also kind of falling in love. I don't know how, like, if I should even say that because it's still not even a month old, but that is happening. Yeah. So we have, I haven't been sleeping. There's just have been no sleep. And today hit a fan, uh, hit the wall for me and kind of had a, a slight meltdown my bed's broken I found like one bed bug about a few days ago I haven't seen any since because I literally flipped the fucking my shit out and like moved my bed my bed's now broken it's like sprayed everything down like got a mattress cover which ripped it's just like everything that I'm trying to do seems to be like another barrier like I just can't win as of like, like my dishwasher broke my toilet broke no yeah Everything was breaking and I was just like, I'm, I was just, I'm on the verge of tears, but also I'm like the best I've ever been at the same time. It's just a really weird space that like mentally, like I think I have the life that I want, but there's just like maintenance problems that keep surrounding me. I fixed my toilet because it's just like, it was just the string that needed to attach to the, the switch or whatever you want to call it. Mm. And I had to, like, tie it together. Like, and I could ask my landlord to fix my dishwasher, but I really don't want him to come in. I just don't want to deal with it. So there's just, like, a ton of things happening. And I'm not sleeping. And then today, kind of, I just kind of, like, yeah. fell apart. <laughs> I took today off. It's just a lot. It's a lot for one human to deal with. I, yeah, Jackie is doing a lot. And because we're involved in this podcast, I'm, like, it's weird when I switch to talking to you in third person, but... Uh, do it you she was saying the other day I can't remember what hobby she wanted to add to her repertoire but I was just like no you're too busy (laughs) you need to focus on this podcast (laughs) that's fair I mean and you're right it's just like I'm also just joining the socialist alternative group and I don't know how much I can actually put to that but I do there right now I'm meeting once a week to go over readings we're doing one-on-ones for five weeks and I don't know how I feel about it but I did some of the essays 
um, recently, because I, I, there's reading assignments, and yeah, yeah, I related it to some of the stuff that we are going to talk about today. So cool. Go so that it's beneficial to this podcast in some capacity. There you go. But I am, I can't have anything else go wrong in my life. Nothing can, like not not even a little thing. Like you know, That's like the thing, nothing. When you're busy with hobbies and responsibilities, and like even just like people that you see regularly. It's like you, there is no space for like. Yeah, things to Life. go wrong for yeah for the the basis. Yeah, I mean that's capitalism for you. It's like it functions as long as literally no one gets sick or nothing goes wrong, and then you're just like, but the ha- everything goes wrong and everybody gets sick, so it doesn't work. Um, Speaking of capitalism, <laughs> can we segue into our first topic? Yes, let's do it. Um, so friend of the pod, Matt, who doesn't listen to this podcast or any podcasts. Um, no, he is a podcaster now. Like he listens to stuff. I just don't think he listens to ours, which motherfucker. We have to get on his ass. <laughs> Fair enough. I kind of am like, if you already listen to us talk all the time. But he sent us an article about Chris Smalls. If you don't know who Chris Smalls is, he is a labor organizer. He's the president and founder of the Amazon Labor Union, the first Amazon Union. Um, This one's on Staten Island. So he's been doing appearances and going to events. He's really become the face of this movement. And he also happens to have, um, in my opinion, really cool personal style. And it was a Wall Street Journal and Hope signed us up. So now we are a Wall Street Journal card-carrying member. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And basically the article is talking about like Chris Small's fashion and other fashion within the labor movement and there's like a twitter account that started that's called uh union drip that posts like people in unions wearing cool outfits there's some people within the labor movement unions who are like you shouldn't dress like that you shouldn't be wearing 400 dollars shoes it takes away from the message i kind of wonder like you know it's just one article like how many people are really saying that but i mean that is like historically something people say where it's like oh you're receiving help from the government or you're like asking for more money but you're buying a bunch of stuff like why do you need why do you need that stuff did they say that i don't remember them saying that in there so like one one person interviewed in the article mr lilu 46 cautions workers publicly protesting pay and working conditions not to get too snazzy Quote, if you're wearing $400 shoes, he said, that could shoot some of your arguments in the foot. And why do you think that it would shoot you in the foot? I think the thought is, like, if you're someone who's asking for higher pay, but you're wearing $400 shoes, people look at you and think, like, you have enough money because you have $400 shoes. Well, that's not true. So. Yeah, it's. It's an, it's not a, it's also, though, it has to do with the fact that having any kind of flair style means you're an outsider Mm, me an outsider what do you mean like like the people that are going to be at the table all kind of look similar because i've been at the table and it's usually white males that are dressed a certain way in their union rep stuff and if you're wearing any kind of flair you're clearly not part of the the group you know which i think might also quote unquote shoot you in the foot you don't want to be seen as i don't know the shit starter even though you are Yeah, and I mean, they're talking about, like, it's kind of cool, strange, funny that, um, like, in England, several fashion brands launched shirts inspired by the National Health Service. Last year, the U.S. Postal Service teamed up with Vans to make Postal Service shoes, and, like, people in streetwear are styling up labor union t-shirts. It's, like, becoming, like, a trendy item, and some labor unions are trying to, like, up their merch game, which I thought was funny because you've talked about like how the logos of unions are terrible. Yeah, yeah, I still stand by that. But they're choosing different colors, like some pink colors. I'm like, good. There needs to be more pink shirts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Chris Smalls is really the reason that people are even talking about this. I mean, he just looks aesthetically com- like someone that would not have started and run a, a union at all, like wearing gold mm-hmm. chains, wearing like. Do rags, I guess. I think that's what they're called. He also did a look for an event where he had like black overalls under a black blazer with like chunky like lug sole boots. Super cool. 
Yeah, he obviously has a, a flair for fashion, and I've acknowledged that in him, and I've always appreciated it about him. He also smokes weed openly and, like, hands out food. So, like, already he's not giving – because I feel like a lot of unions, it's not as rank and file now. Like, a lot of the unions that are sta- standard are more focused on the bureaucratic they, – they've just been so evolved and uh, they have a history. They're bureaucratic now. And sometimes we have to fight against the union to get, like, so the rank and file can win what they want and need. And need. And his flair for fashion, I don't know, is just showcasing his, he doesn't give a fuck. And I feel like in the union rep, like, there's people, they have jobs as in the union, right? And they can't really openly smoke weed because there's, but it's like they're part of the system. They're trying to appeal to corporations in some capacity by looking and kind of acting like them and they're not they're not boots on the ground like chris smalls is or any any really like small labor grassroots union is like and they're not talking to the rank, the rank and file groups of people either so i don't know there's something really appreciative about smoking weed in public to me and uh yeah and like it's so weird because like even though it's legal it still feels like you can't make it part of your public persona in a professional context and it's like, why? Why does alcohol continue to be so acceptable and weed isn't? Yeah, dude. Yeah, exactly. And he's just like, fuck it. He gave out free weed. That was part of his push. He would give out free weed and food. And also something about his outfits, it's cultural. Like, he obviously isn't like a white person wearing white person clothes. Like, this is like he's dressing uh, in a certain way that they do in New York and where he's from. Like, there's a, an aesthetic to it. So, like, there's a cultural representation and you don't really see that when you are part of any kind of corporation, including like union leadership. <laughs> it's like there you have to homogenize in a way that it makes you accepted. Right. It's like when you're doing something kind of like out there, there's a t- there's a, t- a temptation to make yourself look really non-threatening. But he's not doing that. He's looking ostentatious and stylish and and it's it's pretty cool. He also like went on Tucker Carlson and pissed people off and he was he was responding by saying like do you think that people at Amazon don't watch Fox News like do you think that it's only leftists who who are laborers like you know he's talking about this is about this is about workers not not politics which is so powerful because it's like yeah obviously politicians want us they want people on the right to hate unions they want us to be against each other and it's like no it's us against the rich, baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really awesome to hear. I also, I really think that you can win anybody over by good food. And that's what he did. Mm, yeah, totally. He was making like huge batches of like homemade food yeah. and giving it out. One other thing was that I think it was at the Apple store that unionized or somewhere they are really into Crocs. They have like Croc Friday and like, wait, this article was just, what? It was Croc Sunday. <laughs> I thought okay <laughs> I wasn't sure I was and I thought it was at the Amazon not at the Starbucks or the Apple I'll never find the article ever again okay we were both right and wrong it was at a Baltimore area Apple store that became the first to unionize workers have started a Crocs Sunday tradition and it's just fun you know I just <laughs> I youngins. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah I really like the freedom of style and not having because I mean to me it's just showcasing that it's not all it's not just blue collar people unionizing I think that's a big one um and like still toe boots yes but like apple workers don't have still put toe boots you know like yeah it's it's just allowing people to like it's showcasing how people are engaging and expanding the fact that they we all deserve a living wage and like we all deserve better working conditions even if you aren't working on the field and having to dress a certain way i think that's really what it is it's just like the fashion itself is showcasing the work that the people are doing it's it's diversifying in the union world yeah that's all i got it's a wrap baby okay next up well speaking of like I don't know, homogenizing within like union leaderships. I have a piece on Alabama Rush and talk homogeny, baby. That is all it is, is everybody looking the exact 
same. And I don't know if y'all anybody else is following Bama TikTok or Bama Rush TikTok. I wasn't, and then I was just like, it's. I remember last year this time around, everybody was talking about it, and then it's happening again this time around. So I was like, I should at least check it out, you know. And oh, it's a thing. So like every year, Bama Rush is like a thing that people follow online. Yeah, so that's University of Alabama, for those that don't know. But it's also, like, not exclusive to just Bama rushing. There's tons of other sororities all over um, the South, really, essentially. And I have always hated sororities, so I have a bias against sororities. My mom was always like, you don't pay for friends. And I don't know. I think there could be a room for, like, sisterhood. But the sisterhood is usually white supremacist, uh, classist assholes. So I don't know if I want to be part of that. Um, and to say otherwise is not true. <laughs> there are black sororities, um, but the, these Bama Rush is not that. <laughs> so, so you came across this on TikTok, yeah. And I have three points that I wanted to point out style-wise. Okay, the homogeny is one. The extreme femininity is like verging on camp, essentially, and love of fast fashion. Because most of the things that the students are wearing, they're wearing multiple outfits a day, and they're from Sheen. Um, but anyways, the ho- the homogeny aspect is, again, white supremacy does best when everybody looks the same. When it, it's like, what's it called? Like mono- monotone, monolithic? Yeah, monolithic. When everybody looks the same, then you can decide who's on the outside <laughs> and mm. who's on the inside. And you want to gain as many people as possible and the way white supremacy does that is through like clothes dyeing hair like you can you can get a look you can get an aesthetic um that people being skinny that is it's obviously pushed and if you are those things there's way higher likelihood of you being rushed into one of these sororities and that's just something you cannot not see they're all mostly all of them are blonde most of them are all very very skinny and they all have the same aesthetic um and they're required to wear the same kind of outfits through the rush process anyways and that leads me to like the extreme feminine what were you gonna say something yeah yeah well i just wonder like what you think i mean i totally agree like especially with like being blonde and having, you know, a certain kind of hair or hair texture and, like, being thin, it's, like, clearly an agent or a result of white supremacy. With, like, the aesthetic, it's, like, I mean, seems like with, like, punk, it's, like, you just have groups of people who think similarly who are all dressing the same, right? Right, right. But this is this is part of the class, like, the sorority history is white supremacy in the sense that it was to marry into a wealthy, uh, to a wealthy man that was in a fraternity. It was basically how to learn how to be a wife um, and, like, have a nuclear family, like, be white. <laughs> like, it, yeah. it, 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 the basis of it is straight up just like promoting capitalism and white supremacy at its finest. And it's changed and different through the years, but it's still very much like that now. I mean, like in the South, it's very extreme and watching these Bama rush stuff, like kind of gave me PTSD. Cause I just like started to remember a little about living in the South. I didn't have relationships with anybody that was really in a sorority, but I do, I did know a couple people, you know, and they, they were exceptionally blonde and fake tanned. And they always had mediocre boyfriends that were from frats. <laughs> um, anyways, so it's, it's, it's roots are on white supremacy. So, like, you can't, like, not look at, I don't know. To me, you can't look at a sorority and not, like, at least detach the aspect of it. It is still a language that they are that they are speaking to each other just like any other trends or like any other style for sure. But that the language that they're speaking to is inclusion of like being white, being thin, um, wearing very feminine, like being feminine as fuck and uh, being blonde preferably. Yeah. I mean, do you think that their aesthetic differs a ton from people in college who, aren't in a sorority like because if they're shopping at Shein it's like they're 
just wearing basic trendy stuff. Oh, yeah. I was going to get to that, too. Um, yes and no. I mean, people don't get accepted into sororities that try. But, like, I can if you are in the South, you can spot a sorority girl. There's no, like there's just it, they look no offense to my sorority girls that are listening. We love you. It's not that it's just like. But there is a look that ages them, too. They're, like, almost like they're, like, Miss America aesthetic that kind of makes, like, 20-year-olds look like they're 30. I can't explain. It's, like, the makeup, the hair. This definitely seems like a Southern thing. Like, the sorority girls at my school wore sweatshirts and leggings. That was, like, you could, like, they all wore sweatshirts and leggings, like, all the time. Yeah. This is Southern culture. This is why it's Bama Rush. Right. And right, and not right. California Rush, you know? Like, there, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, de- this, that's why I'm saying I was triggered while, Watching this because I was just like, I forgot. I had just because for- I just was never involved and I kind of forgot the weird classist world. Like, it's a world that still has like legacy. Legacy is very involved. It's so fucking weird. Um, anyways, but I did like, I didn't mind their outfits. I was here for their outfits, honestly. Really? Yes. I was like super for the extreme femininity part. I was like, yes, girl, get it. Like some of the outfits, like there was this one girl that won like Miss Ohio that I was following. And she, she had like, she was, she looked like a drag queen, honestly. Like she looked like she was being very performative in her femininity. And I was like, absolutely here for it. Like I could not, like, I was like, she better win it all. She had like huge curlers in her hair and she would let it out and be like huge hair. Like, she yeah. looks like Elle Woods to the max, you know, but like Southern yeah. as fuck, like nails done. Like it, it was just like, I, w- I was like, yes, yes. I'm reading Susan Sontag right now on camp to prepare for a future episode. And she talks about how like the purest form of camp is when you're not being camp on purpose and talks about like, and so it's like, that's camp, their camp. Yeah, they're not trying to do it. They're just being they're just being feminine girls. They just want to be like cute. And and in that southern world, it is like Dollywood-esque. It's Dolly Parton-esque. Like it's it's very I'm I I honestly aspire to that aesthetic and I and I can see where it's hit me in certain ways cuz I I like watching it, I'm like, "Oh, that's why I'm attracted to these certain things." You know, like cuz I kind of grew up around that aesthetic like I love the whole complete look with the nails I love like a short mini skirt but it's like like a tweed full two-piece like someone was wearing a tweed tweed two-piece outfit I was like yes yes and like gold like necklace yeah gaudy yes but it is kind of showing you like southern bell history it's like the sororities are clearly is trying to put off an aesthetic that they're wealthy enough to look that way, right? They want to be like Miss Americas mm-hmm. of the world. They're not, they're our real estate agents. <laughs> <I know that's> <laughs> <laughs> and they just like don't, they're not here to do hard labor. They're not here to even like, it, it's an aesthetic that right, is like right. going to fit into the world that they want to be a part of. Right, right. There are a lot of skirts, um, like, that's pretty much I didn't see any pants except for like jean shorts. I didn't really see that. I mean, I'm sure they have some jean shorts sometimes. I'm sure somebody wears that. But during the rush time, I think it was like a requirement that you can't wear like except for when they have pajamas because they sometimes they have pajamas outfit because they do like a sleepover and they'd all have matching again pajamas and shoes like Whoa. slippers. Yeah. And they would wear shorts then. Um, but like for the most part, it was mostly skirts. Like there was a two tier skirt for like rush day or something, um, where it kind of looks like, like almost like a cowgirl level skirt. I can't explain it, but it was like frilly on half of it and the frilly at the end of it. And they wore that with their white t-shirts. And there was also like these sparkly skirts, like that people wear. It looks like it's made out of pom-pom material almost, or like, yeah, all these things you can get on Sheen, by the way. But it's, it's just interesting how many skirts (laughs) There was in, and again, reiterates my point of the femininity aspect. There was also a lot of festival wear. I saw people wearing, like, glitter, like, rhinestones on their face and stuff. Because it was, like, party, dude. Like, yeah. they're, you're partying. Do you think they're euphoria-inspired? Oh, my God. A hundred percent hope. I didn't even think about that. But absolutely. Really? Yeah. These kids are, their brain's all, you know, mal- malleable? 
my brain is it because I can't even think of the word valuable. It's this is as hard as a rock. <laughs> yeah, dude, you can't penetrate there with with your vocabulary corrections. I know. <laughs> it's true. It's like if I f- remember a word, it's gonna be stuck if it, even if it's wrong forever. Um, but yeah, it's like these kids are young and impressionable. Of course, they they saw euphoria and we're like well i'm not gonna be that weird but i will for rush wear some sparkly stuff on my face Mm -hmm. this is so different than what i was picturing when like i was just picturing the sort of girls at my school this is so different yeah it's super different um i know like black schools because we again the south has historical black colleges there's a lot more than i don't know any in the west side i don't think they even exist on the west side but the west coast yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> West side. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't even know if there is any on the West Coast. But, like, they also have a fashion aesthetic that I think that's, like, I remember my friend was telling me, because she went to a historical black college, she's like, you are not allowed to look slouchy at all. And that's kind of, like, the Southern aspect uh, in the sorority world, too. Like, you aren't allowed, you have to be wearing heels, you have to be looking prim and proper. It's like you're, you're going into the job when you're going into school. It's really bizarre to me. Um, my school wasn't necessarily like that because it was Middle Tennessee State University. It was like hick, like everybody got in. It's fine. There wasn't really a big sorority fraternity vibe there. It was like the number one recording industry school, so it was just less like. It, it, a lot of people came in from Nashville, so it, it didn't feel like that. But mo- like historical black colleges, and I think like the University of like Tennessee, University of Mississippi, University of Alabama. I think there's an expectation to look uh, put together hmm. at a young age. It just seems so hard to do while you're in college. You're like, yeah, I, you're broke, or I guess you're not broke, but also, aren't you like tired and studying? Yeah, I mean, are you studying? You know, <laughs> as long as, especially if you're in a sorority, you can just share stuff. That's how they get ahead. That's how they have all good grades. They're just sharing notes. Sharing notes and test answers from the year previous. That is the big... That's why you want to be in a sorority, if you're going to be in a sorority, quite honestly. Um, And then the last item is the fast fashion uh, aspect of it. There's, like, multiple outfits a day. Just, like, I think also kind of showcases the... How it's becoming more accessible, but not really... Like, the sororities themselves, like, I, when I say accessible, I think more, like, looking a certain class is not as visible as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And fast fashion has been a part, been that reason for that. So people can have a mm-hmm. bunch of outfits and afford it, but still look like they're participating in the upper class, you know, like, right, bourgeois. Right. So I just, yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting because I'm wondering, I'm wondering the numbers. I don't know, I don't have the numbers, but I wonder if there's more people participating in doing Rush than there have been before because Sheen exists, <laughs> literally. That's what I, I'm kind of curious. Hmm. But uh, yeah, there's just a, an ability to afford the outfits that are required. And I think there's an expectation too, so. Interesting. I'm surprised I haven't seen any of this content on our shared TikTok. Like the Bama TikToks, the Bama yeah. Rush TikToks. Cause I, yeah, like if if are you watching on your personal account? No, the algorithm. I don't. I don't understand it. I don't try to understand it, and no one's really critiquing it, like I am. I think people are like really into it, and I don't into Bama Rush. Yeah, I'm sure there's somebody critiquing it. I can't be like that. No one's, but I haven't seen anybody that I when I was doing my research, in the way that's like Rush, like sororities suck. And then I was watching people. Like, former sorority girls that are now moms, you know, on TikTok talking about their favorite sorority girl, Rush girl. Mm, and I, like, watched all those TikToks. And Whoa. Like, yeah. in earnest? They're, like, in earnest. their fighter? And honestly, this one, the one mom that I was watching on TikTok, I don't remember her name, but she was cute and funny. And I would definitely drink some wine with her. And that's, like, the thing. There's something about Southern humor sorority girl humor that they are funny sometimes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i feel like there's like a there's a lack of self-seriousness that's really refreshing you know it's just like when you have enough money you can be funny and uh, you know drink wine midday and have a good time it's just like that's the, that's the reality of it but yeah i wonder if there i was talking about multiverses the other day with um dude and i was just wondering if there was a reality where i was ever a sorority girl Mm-hmm. I don't know if there is that world is far away I think yeah I don't think I don't think I'm cool enough I think I'm too nerdy 
for the sorority girl reality. Like I would always been like, I would always be like still political somehow. Yeah. Like either extremely Republican or extremely liberal. It's like no in between for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. You would have been like organizing within the, the sorority. I think I might've forgotten to feed Lulu. I'm going to text Brian. Okay. Is she whining? Yeah, she's whining. Hello. All right. On to the next um, journey. Once you've texted him. Yeah. Okay. So our next topic, actually also something that Matt sent us. <laughs> Oh, my God. Matt giving us pure content. Yeah, he is so on the Internet. Like, yeah, he never hangs out because he's on the Internet because he's just online. So there's this event that happened called Prada Frames. It was a symposium that was kind of like sponsored by Prada, curated by a group called Forma Phantasma, a research and design studio based in Milan and Rotterdam. Very like highbrow, artsy, fartsy stuff. Um this event took place at a really beautiful library in Milan. It was free. It was this June. The reason we were interested in it was partly because it was sponsored by Prada and partly because one of the speakers was Anna Singh, who is an anthropologist whose book Mushroom at the End of the World was super influential to both of us for our theses and is just like a theory nerd's wet dream. It's like about kind of like the connections between disparate groups of people and like economic trends and like ecologies and i won't get too much into it but oh please do though it's hard to explain for a reason it is hard to explain her book follows the this matsutake mushroom from oregon where it was being harvested by local oregonians as well as like the hmong group of people and it kind of talks about like how both of those groups ended up there harvesting this mushroom and then takes you also to Japan where like it is this huge delicacy and then also to Norway. And it talks about like forest management practices in Norway versus Japan and like which forest practices encourage the mushroom. But the way she does it, I mean, she's just brilliant. And so the project that she was talking about at this symposium was Feral Atlas, which was a project between artists and like people who do mapping and scientists and yada yada i was spending some time on it the other day it like takes you through these different like forces of the anthropocene like crowd they talk about like like crowding as being this generator of like disease and yada yada and they talk about like accumulation and it's just like really beautifully done with these illustrations and these like kind of like bird's eye view perspective drawings and yada yada and the symposium was kind of like about forests like session one was called contextualizing session one introduces the forest as a living being and the camera as a mediator in the understanding of plants as sentient beings the session also highlights how architectural knowledge can be applied as a forensic tool and then like in her session it's called inhabiting Session six introduces modes of inhabiting and responsibly sourcing materials from the forest. The session also brings forward forest indigenous knowledge and, quote, feral dynamics. So I thought it was interesting that Prada put this on. I was kind of looking into the Prada group and like what kinds of things they sponsor. It kind of reminded me of conversations we've had where you've talked about like how the big fashion houses have always put a lot of money into art, like more like the highbrow arts like this feels like a bit of a different kind of thing like I think it's pretty cool that it was free I think it's pretty cool that it was like kind of like more interdisciplinary it wasn't just for like art snobs it was like about design and ecology and yada yada um and I was like looking at product group at like the different projects and nothing really jumped out to me I did think it was cool that they listed the Prada store in marfa texas on there it they didn't do that but they kind of like endorsed it you know the prada store in marfa yeah oh yeah yeah for those that don't know it's basically an art installation that's just a standalone prada store in the middle of the desert aka marfa texas they like endorsed it and they supplied shoes to it to like create the store you know it got robbed like pretty quickly i didn't know that i didn't know that yeah i love that so i bet somebody from marfa probably robbed i mean like why not? Yeah, Why the right. fuck not? I know, honestly. It's definitely a victimless crime. Like, I guess it is sad that the art piece maybe didn't get to be its vision, but it just becomes a different thing, I guess. And it also kind of made me think about Vivian Westwood, like, because all of these designers, 
like these fashion houses are donating money to one thing or another. Like Vivian Westwood donates to a lot of like climate organizations. Prada's donating to like whatever, like artsy stuff. So why put this on? You know? Also, it was annoying that they called it like Prada Frames because and then they were like hashtag Prada Frames. And then when I was searching the hashtag Prada Frames, it was like glasses. Yeah. What's up with that? There has to be a reason. Maybe they were trying to sell their frame. Maybe the Prada Frames like the eyewear was the one that organized it. They started doing eyewear like in 2015 or something. So it's like relatively new. But yeah, no, I, I do love all these like artsy names for these i guess lectures they're all just lectures right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we tried to contact anna Singh. well we did contact her to try to get her to be on the podcast she said no and we were just like really excited that she responded to us because we're obsessed and then i also reached out to fei fei and she did not respond understandably i was that's why we were like obsessed with the fact that anna Singh even responded because i was just like who responds to okay. us yeah yeah, so cool. We saw I saw her speak when she was at UW. Yeah, anyway, I mean, I think like when I saw it was Prada, I was like, and the graphics are really cool. I mean, Form of Phantasma, everything they do has like a cool aesthetic. Like you should check out their website and their work. I definitely will. Here's the thing. I do love Prada and the designs Prada does, the art house of Prada. I mean, I'm still mad at the fashion world for not acknowledging the impact of damage that they've done to our world. And I think that every single one of them could do more. And I think they've done enough, quite honestly. And what they could just do now is run these, like, they could stop even making clothes and they could just have these conventions. What about just really, really small collections? Like, because, I mean, yeah. it's like you have to be so wealthy to do, like, couture and they've got the funds. Like, couldn't they just, yeah, like, they'll just, they're just like an inspo board for us. Yeah, I think that would be really great. They could even do a very small collection and then it would be... Like, their items would be even more collectibles and, like, more expensive. And why not? Yeah. Save the world, um, Prada. Be better. That's all I'm saying. We need to... I'm really happy that Anna Singh did this. And this, this sounds really cool. What did she even talk about? Feral Atlas, that project. She talked about, like, for, like the form of forests. Like, both underground... And above ground, like, root structures and, like, mushroom relationships. It was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that is something I'm very into. And I love how Hope, like, her eyes rolled in the back of her head to remember what 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 Anna sings. Well, also because I watched it the night that you came over and you wanted a cigarette. And I can't, I can't roll a cigarette. And you don't love rolling cigarettes. And Brian was busy. So I found one pre-rolled in oh yeah the, the drawer and then we smoked it and i was like that had weed in it and i got real high and i was trying to watch the prada frames talks and then i was like fuck it i'm just gonna finish season two of hacks <laughs> oh did you finish <laughs> yeah and i loved it i mean i think season one for me was like more exciting because you're like oh my god they're becoming friends against all odds and like there's more like momentum and this season was like more satisfying because you get to see things kind of like come to fruition it's such a good show it is i wondered i don't know how i like if i like the ending because it doesn't feel like that Mm. realistic but um for deborah to just like fire her yeah for her own good i know she was trying to be like be a better person but i'm like but in really reality people it's a lot harder like people choose not to do the right thing because it's actually the hard thing to do and if you're that old i don't know people don't do that kind of stuff you know yeah yeah and i also didn't think like yeah, whatever. We shouldn't get too far into it, but I want to um, hear it though. The the audience wants to hear it too. Like when Ava was like, "I want to be near you." I, like I was like, "Would she really be this effusive right now?" Like that seems a little bit out of character. Yeah, I agree. I think they're just trying to wrap it up. Totally, totally. It just seemed like she was like, she might have like put walls up in that moment. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think to- so many co- companies sponsor events. Like I don't go to a soccer game which I went to once in my life and think like oh I didn't know that like the subway brand was involved in soccer it's like it's like I don't know why it matters that Prada sponsored this it kind of doesn't but it, it got us talking so here we I are. mean it is weird that Anna Singh was even part of it like in the sense that Anna Singh I guess just was hired to talk and she's probably like yeah that makes sense but to me Anna Singh is so like 
only talks at schools, you know. <laughs> She's like an academic. So it's just very odd that Prada hired these lecturers. I don't know. I guess there's not any other thing to do. I just don't know how much Prada was involved. Like it seems That's like fair. Forma Phantasma was the one okay. that hired, that like brought people on and Prada was just like paid money, you know. They yeah. just gave a lump sum of money. But when we first saw it, we were both confused. Yeah, definitely. It was an event that I felt like it took me a lot of reading to understand what was going on. Yeah. And even when you watched the video, you weren't completely sure. (laughs) (laughs) That was a, yeah, an acute instance of confusion. All right. And now we're going to go on to our next thing. Yeah. Speaking of other stuff, what we did while high, we watched the Beauty of Blackness documentary on HBO Max, which talks about kind of like the second stage in this brand, Fashion Fair's life. Fashion Fair Cosmetics was started by Eunice and her husband, John H. Johnson, who created a publishing empire that included Ebony and Jet magazines. We first I guess I first took an interest in Ebony Magazine while reading Andre Leon Talley's memoir. And we have an episode on that. If you haven't listened to it, Andre Leon Talley, the late fashion journalist, Vogue journalist, worked for Ebony for a while. And he says that basically, like, his family didn't read WWD at all. Like, they didn't really connect to the work that he'd done that far. But they all subscribed to and read Ebony and Jet, which he describes as a weekly publication that addressed the black community on a national basis. So like finally, he had a job that would make his entire church family and his aunts and cousins proud. It sounds silly to even say this, because like obviously these magazines are super influential for black people because like they weren't in other magazines. Like uh, Elaine Welteroth, actually, the former Teen Vogue director or whatever, talks about how like she had an assignment in school where they were cutting out pictures of their families from magazines, cutting out things from magazines to represent their family. And she just like couldn't find anyone who looked like her. It's like an experience I'm sure tons and tons of people have had. And Ebony Magazine also was a really important representation of black joy. Jackie and I went to Seattle Art Museum and saw a painter Derek Adams series called Floaters, which specifically depicts black people in the pool. And he talks about how seeing Martin Luther King on vacation in Jamaica in Ebony Magazine really inspired this series because you see these photos of Martin Luther King that we never typically see of him just like enjoying a vacation and being a human with his family. Anyhow, (laughs) Eunice Johnson, she also, she starts doing these fashion shows. Yeah. There ran like a tight ship that was like in 19, I want to say 66. 1958. Is when she started it? Yeah. A friend of Eunice asked her to help her with a fashion show for a hospital in New Orleans. And what began as a one-time event soon became a major fundraising enterprise with black models wearing clothes by black designers. Yeah. And it was a 12, like eventually in the 60s, it became like a full thing (laughs) Uh, with as many of 187 shows during a 12-week run twice a year. Johnson's engaged in the fashion mad yet largely overlooked black middle class, giving them access to... Eve St. Lawrence and Balatino Couture. That was impossible otherwise. And she ran, like I said, a tight ass ship, including yeah. like giving a fine for any model that would be late. Oh, wow. <laughs> Got some Anna, Anna Wintour energy. Yeah. I mean, understandably, like, there's a lot of things happening. And this was a representation of fashion for black people. And I think Johnson understood the weight of it. Like the Johnson family understood the weight of it because it was acceptance into like white culture basically yeah and like Eunice Johnson understood that black women had a craving for high fashion and like because she she was so wealthy she had access to these worlds where like a lot of other black women didn't and so she was able to get meetings with ateliers and with you know people in the business and so she was able to connect other black women to these industries into this like world through these events yeah I mean there was a quote that I really liked It was from a makeup artist, Sam Fine, who says, I'm from Chicago, so I've always known about Oprah, Michael Jordan, and the Johnsons. Because the Johnsons are from Chicago. And I just, I don't think us as white people understand the impact that Ebony and Jet really had. Because we just don't understand. But it's huge. It was, it's huge. The Smithsonian 
right now is digitally archiving. I think actually I read that Ebony Magazine like sold their archive. Yeah, so the Smithsonian is like digitally archiving it, which is super important to like to keep those photos like in a record and put them in a place where like people can access them and, and like, you know, be able to like learn about these stories. And it's like crazy because it's like there was this glamorous aspect to it. Like they're traveling the road like going to all of these different fashion shows but like the lifestyle was far from glamorous like in the south early on the bus would stop for gas and like the restrooms would have signs like no blacks in the ladies room because most southern hotels would not accommodate black people Eunice Johnson had to find like an arrange with local families to provide places for the models to stay so it was like on they were like being able to participate in this industry that was like so white and so racist but they still were like having to deal with racist America it's just like Fashion is for everybody, you know, and honestly, black people have always been more fashionable. I don't understand, like, why it was hard for people to understand that um, at any point. But yeah, and while like working with all these models, Eunice Johnson noticed that like they were blending numerous colors to get the right shade of foundation. And in 1973, she introduced Fashion Fair Cosmetics. So it was like the first brand that was making makeup for black people. And essentially what this documentary, The the Beauty of Blackness, talks about is how, you know, the brand kind of went downhill around 2015. And now there are several black women who bought the brand, pooled the resources to buy the brand and are reviving it. And so that was that was the story of this documentary. Yeah. It was like in 1973 when this was when they opened it up as Fast Fair Cosmetics just so women of color could finally wear makeup, which again, I don't think we understand. Like I've always had my makeup like foundation available. I've always had things that work for me at a drugstore. You can go to a drugstore and yeah. get the same color of your face. Yeah. I, I can't even wrap my mind around like if you're a model and not having anything, there's just so many layers to that. I don't, it's just, yeah. So yeah. It's very important that they were made for black people, for black women, and Fashion Fair Cosmetics became huge. And they ended up opening at the cosmetic counters in like in malls. And they had a display there at like Neiman Marcus. And that was like a huge deal because you didn't see black women usually at these counters at all. So again, it was just Ebony and Jet making impact and making some of the first for black people on certain fronts. And that they really, the Johnsons really did everything, honestly. They did, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and Kelly Rowland, who's in the documentary, and she looks amazing. Amazing. I think it was her that was talking about, like, when you're getting done up, like, on a photo shoot or, like, a music video or whatever, and you have someone who doesn't know how to do makeup, they don't have your right makeup there, like, you end up looking washed out. Like, they, they put the wrong color on you. They don't know how to do your hair. And it's like, you know, you're getting up on stage like you want to look your best. You want to feel your best. Absolutely. It sounds like so upsetting. Well, expect. let's go on. Just to like, yeah, not have people have people not know how to do your makeup. Well, yeah, I think it's like, you know, the potential that is there. And then when you someone puts makeup that doesn't work for you, you're and it doesn't reach that full potential that is possible. It's just like, that's rude. Totally. <laughs> right. You're like, I accept myself as I am, you know, like I know I'm no Beyonce, but yeah. like I still want to look my best. Yeah, exactly. And like when you put on makeup to look your best. So yeah, when it does the opposite, it really it crushes. I think it really crushes your soul. Like I think there's an yeah. aspect of when makeup's really bad and you don't look, you look worse than you did before with no makeup. It's just right. Like, They're talking about like people would get their makeup done and then they would just like go wipe it off and do it themselves because it was like, you know. Um, and so like people were really going crazy for this stuff. Like it was fulfilling such a niche, like something that people really needed. But then there were some things that made it difficult. Like by 2015, the Wall Street Journal wrote that Fashion Fair remained the only department store cosmetics brand catering specifically to black women. It was still fully owned by Johnson Publishing. But like, even though they were an important brand, like their competitors were giants, like L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, LVMH, Louis Vuitton. Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder. All of those brands started carrying makeup for black women, you know, inspired by Fashion Fair, and then it was hard for them to compete. And they were a subsidiary of a media company. And like media, like publishing has been a really difficult industry. 
And so, yeah, they were like having trouble keeping their products stocked. They were not doing well. Yeah, so in 2016, Johnson Publishing sold Ebony and Jet to a private equity firm with Fashion Fair filing for bankruptcy shortly thereafter. But then Desiree Rogers, who was chief executive of Johnson Publishing and a former social secretary in the early years of the Obama White House, she was one of the women who like bought the company. I, I didn't know that when we were re- watching the documentary. Oh, they talk about it in the documentary, though. Oh, for some reason, I thought it was like an all new group of women that hadn't been associated with Fashion Fair before that were buying it. Oh, I, I uh, the Fashion Fair aspect, I didn't know, but I like the connection there. But um, I did know about the Obama thing, which I always thought was kind of random. I was like, I don't understand yeah. this. But I guess because like right. she's from Chicago, she probably knew Michelle. Or she knew Obama, obviously, too. I mean, like, whatever. But I'm I'm assuming that, I don't know, Chicago's probably a small, big city. Yeah. Just, like, a funny. You know, people in politics, they also own companies. They do it all. Yeah, and the documentary talks about, like, how beauty is associated with power, which is associated with whiteness, and, like, the beauty industry was catering to whiteness, and, like, basically trying to make black women look white and they wanted the industry to stop trying to make them look white. Yeah. So they basically, I I don't know if we've said this, but fashion fair closed down in like 2016 because it filed for bankruptcy because Johnson publishing sold Ebony and Jet and yeah, it just kind of fizzled out. But by the end of, I mean like, before that, people were couldn't even find fashion fair like they could before. People were really disgruntled about the fact that they were just not finding. Um, it wasn't on the shelf like it used to be. And so people started to hoard things. Yeah. And then they went bankrupt. I mean, like, essentially, they were just making less because they didn't have the money. And then they went fully bankrupt. And Desiree Rogers, like we were talking about, was like, OK, well, we're going to bring it back. And by the end of 2019, after acquiring Black Opal, a mass market skincare and makeup line for women of color with her friend and another Johnson Publishing, Cheryl Mayberry McKissick, raised some funds with help of like minority investors to buy Fashion Fair as well. It's pretty fun in the documentary because you see them like there's an auction and they like win it and it's it's exciting yeah they were like they were like bidding on it yeah but and if they hadn't won that would be insane and yeah so fashion fair is now ran by this company called black opal and the documentary from there on out like was all about when they were going to finally have supplies like in stores and there was like a countdown of when it was going to happen and it kind of like a very inspiring commercial yeah, exactly. That's what you said at the end of it. And I was like, that's very true. It felt like a commercial <laughs> towards the end. I do think it was a good watch, though. Like, I liked when they, they did focus groups with black women. And I don't know. I thought it was really powerful to just hear their experiences and, like, talk about, I don't know, like, why this brand was so important. And I mean, know. they sold me. I was like, yeah. I mean, I don't think I can buy any fashion fair stuff. But I'm like, yeah, I'll buy fashion fair if you want me to. I, absolutely. Yeah. There's such an impact of a history there, cultural history there. and But I just thought for documentary sake, it felt less like a documentary and definitely like a long form commercial. They're smart as fuck. Like the fact that they were recording like as early as when they were like trying to win the auction. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they know what they're doing. Also, just more black women in our media all the time. Totally. So, you know, watch, watch the documentary or go out and buy the makeup or whatever. Yeah, buy Fashion Fair. Just do it. Actually, yeah, I should probably buy Fashion Fair. I don't know if it's if it's launched again yet, but but then what do you mean? Aren't they like relaunching it? Like the products weren't on the shelf for a while. They're like rebranding and like, isn't there going to be like a big reveal when they? I don't know. You're just thinking of the documentary because I was just about look. There's a website. Oh, and you can honestly, not a huge fan of this website. I got to tell you, girls. I got to tell you, this is giving. Um, what is that like? Old women um fashion line i don't know but yeah the it, it feels like this website i'm gonna send it to you i'm looking at the website yeah okay okay so it's like yeah it doesn't feel it doesn't feel new it doesn't feel fresh you know yeah maybe it's catering to like a bit of like an older demographic probably that makes sense it's like the people that have been using it for a while 
It's 100% vegan is what they're saying. At least the pressed powder is. Yeah, this looks cool, dude. I They do have makeup that you can buy on the website. So go buy it. Even if you're white, go buy a stick. Always buy from black owned businesses. Am I right? But what if they're having stocking problems again? You still buy them? <laughs> I don't know. Was that, does that make it worse? Does that mean we yeah, should Yeah, like buy? that was like a huge issue before where they were like, they couldn't keep it on the shelves. I think they're financially more stable. That The reason they weren't able to keep it on the shelves is because they didn't have any money to make the product. No, the suppliers like weren't able to get it to them. Like they were like backlogged. Like the suppliers couldn't get it to them. And then like people would hoard the product and then make even more things go out of stock. And then they were like, it was like hard for... Yeah, it was like a manufacturing issue. Do you think that's happening right now? Are you concerned that if us as white people, we bought some, that we'd be part of the problem in some way? Yeah. I don't know. I just don't know if like, if if maybe buy like a foundation brush, something you can actually use. I was just say lipstick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Like you don't have to buy foundation, foundation, but you, I mean, just buy uh, cheek stuff, buy eyeliner. Always buy black-owned uh, businesses from black-owned businesses. Okay. I remember my friend was talking about like there's this black wig store in London that she likes to look at, but she's like scared to go in because she's she's white, and she's like, I just don't want to be like taking up space. And I'm like, dude, give them money. Like, stop being weird. Buy a fucking wig. Just like, yeah. don't worry about that. Like. It, this is it's a consumer market they'll take your money like don't like fair enough and yeah and i also remember i was dating this guy and we passed like by this hot dog stand it was a black dude running the hot dog stand i was like you want a hot dog and i was like no and i was like it's a black owned business and he was like <laughs> you said the right words baby and so we had oh some hot God. dogs wow wait that was in seattle yeah <laughs> but yeah Always buy from black-owned businesses. I might get... Li See, lipstick is hard because I think I need... Yeah, I think I need lip liner. Like, I feel like I'm doing the lipstick wrong every time I do lipstick. And it always gets all over me. Do they not have lip liner here? It seems like a, a fairly scant collection right now. They do. Yeah. No no lipstick liner. But then you can get the brush. You can get the iconic lipstick. You can get the serum. You can get the powder skin. But anyways, uh, yeah. So, got anything else, Hope? No, We're done. I mean, this has been a, been a very successful media haul. Yeah, let's get out of here. I'm gonna okay. take a bath because I I clean my bath for this reason. But anyways, I love you. Love you. We'll talk Bye. to you later. Bye.